Thank you. Song by the Wesleys. You can sense the liberation in it. That last verse, my chains fell off, my heart was free. There's nothing that equals that joy. And yet we can be in church and still an arm's reach away from it. To be there is to be the happiest person, whether you're Paul in the Philippian dungeon or whether you're suffering on a ship 14 days without food, waiting for a hurricane or whatever the tempest was to end, or in a Roman house prison. God's people, in spite of the oppression of Rome, multiplied as the children of Israel did under the oppression of the ancient Pharaoh because their hearts were set free. That's what I'm hoping for today, again, for some, maybe for the first time for you. Let's pray. Lord, we're in your house. We call this the divine worship hour. We've sought, Lord, to distinguish ourselves from the world and seek your presence, seek your face. We come humbly before you, acknowledging this privilege only in the name of Jesus. And now, Lord, I pray, pour your Spirit out on us collectively and individually. May your word live, may it live in us. And may our lives take on that vitalizing power that brings attention to the message of who you are. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. I've entitled my message today in the first of three-part series, The Renaissance of Adventism. Go ahead and make up your mind. It's about to turn away from the pulpit, but I'm, I'm, I'm here today. I, we are down on our microphones. God is on a journey with us. His journey with us involves a focus that no other spot in the entire universe has ever experienced. Jesus, who spoke the worlds into existence, by which all things exist and all things are held together, is looking in the midst of this divine civil war to hold us close to his heart and put us on the path of freedom that gives us back our eternal life. In that journey, from the beginning, he protected the essential element that we would need. And that was the ability to choose. When Adam and Eve walked away, both having partaken of the fruit, when the shivers set in and the fear was upon them, and they were hiding behind the branches that were created for joy and pleasure with fear, Jesus came calling. When they came out from behind the shadows and the story was told, though God needed no telling of it, Jesus pronounced that Adam would gain his living through suffering, Eve would bring beautiful little children into the world through suffering, and the serpent would die. The death of the serpent has not yet happened. The ability to choose was anchored in a decision made when God made free agents. And when Jesus promised that we need not be slaves, he was ensuring the opportunity for us to be free. Now we are living in an age of indulgence. There appears to be almost no oppression of anything. As a matter of fact, what used to be called evil is called good. And what was once called good is called evil. 
It is an age of license and affirmation of license. And in that age, Satan, as he brought the Midianite women into the camp of Israel just before crossing over, since Balaam's curse could do no good, praise the Lord, the Midianite women were brought into the camp, and what cursing from afar by a would-be prophet could not do, indulgence by the lust of the flesh wrought a plague in Israel. We are living on the cusp of our liberation. We are almost to the promised land. The experience of the exodus is just before us, and the floodgates of opportunity for evil are all around us. And so it is no longer that we find ourselves on the eve of our expression of a new being, our liberation from spiritual Egypt. We are no longer under the oppression similar to that of the Israelites of old. We are finding ourselves chained by something far more deadly, and that is desire. Who would have thought that it wouldn't be long in a lifetime, my lifetime, from the age in which the hippie revolution and, and the new social revolutions of the day. Uh, yes, the police left them alone where they had their mosh pits and their marijuana, but today it's now being touted and sold, and far beyond its medicinal value, it's now available for indulgence in a way that I'm sure my grandparents would never have begun to think of, and my parents stand in opposition to, and I would join them. But you know, we voted it even here at least medicinally. Yes, this is the age of indulgence and affirmation of person, nothing to make you doubt yourself. But I'm here to tell you today, in God's economy of social relating, accountability is part of the plan for our salvation. And when it comes to accountability, one cannot be held accountable unless he has the prerogatives of free will and choice. That's what was preserved in the Garden of Eden, our ability to decide, will we follow the intrigues and the, and the lies of the evil one and thus enslave ourselves to our own desires, or will we be set free by the, by the liberating presence of Christ, which has a dynamic accountability? You go down through the ages and you look at the stories of revival in God's people. You find people who, in strength of God and strength of person through God, announce a call, and the call is almost always to repentance. When Nehemiah is dealing with the, the nobles, so-called, in Israel as they've returned, and they're charging usury, and they are making new financial slaves out of their brothers, his confrontation is strong and powerful. When we come to the days of Elijah on Mount Carmel, it's not enough to call the prophets, the 850 priests and prophets of Baal, bad. There is a divine exposition of power and there is an execution. And you can be sure not everybody was happy. We know the queen of Sidon, Jezebel, was not. When you come down to the days of John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, you have a call to repentance, and this call is echoed by Jesus. But what is there to repent of in an age of license and affirmation? So I want to ask you at the beginning of this message, is there anything in your life that needs to change? Or have you simply sought out places where nobody will remind you of messages that echo with some amplification the voice of the Spirit in the silence of your soul? 
You see, this is the deadly opportunity of Adventism in this day and age. You don't like that preacher. You don't like that church. We are now so pluralistic in who we are and even in emphases of message as if in its early days, Adventism lacked the living Christ, lacked righteousness by faith. And we had a renewed emphasis in about its third decade of life on righteousness by faith, but we have found ourselves in a pluralistic environment even in our own church where you seek out the most comfortable place for you to be, as if comfort is the order of health and well-being and equal to assurance in some manner. That's where we're at. God forbid that we should miss the opportunity of the simple opportunity to make up our mind when we hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us. For you see, the one who hung the worlds in space says he knows how many hairs are on your head and he takes note when little birds fall from their nest. You can't have a God that, that's, that is that emotionally and spiritually intimate a God who actually desires through the Spirit to live inside of you and not hear that voice behind you saying, this is the way walking in it. It's fine to have 28 fundamental beliefs, but those are not enough to shepherd your life on the journey of decision-making. Who will I marry? Where will I work? What will I give my life away to? How will I spend my money? How will I dress and eat and think and entertain myself? What will I do? to advance the cause of Christ. This takes a personal God. This takes a voice from above. Is it to the left or to the right? By God's grace, the prophet Isaiah assured us that voice was there. The divisions we find in Adventism today are a spiritual disease of a deafness of soul. Because whether or not we all agree along the way about any specific subject, there is to be a subjectness to order and structure to each other and to truth. And of course, we find ourselves tilting dangerously towards the end of the book of Judges where everybody did what's right in their own eyes because accountability is taboo in our society, our secular society. Don't think for a moment we haven't been breathing the same air and hearing the same news reports and watching the same programs. Oh yes, we all know. Don't you dare judge me. That's a tough thing. The Scripture itself judges. And while it's not my job to go around being God for you, it is your job if you're a parent, and it is your job if you're a teacher, and it is your job if you're a pastor, and it's your job if you're a leader. It is your job to declare right and wrong and not get in the way of the Spirit of God because when the Spirit comes, the Bible says in John 14, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. What we often do is we want to crucify and excoriate the human instrument who gives amplification to the silent or quiet voice of the Spirit. And for some, they become so effective at turning God off, even though they're still coming to church regularly, that anybody who interrupts their or reigns on their parade is persona non grata in their social network. May God forbid that we should have families that are so fragile and church families that are so dysfunctional that we should not love each other. And remember, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If there is a new word for modern secularism as we throw off traditional Christian and Judaic values, it is the word dysfunctional. 
function. We're living in a society where we've been used to banking on trust and integrity, on goodwill and faithfulness to one's word. And we watch as people are picked off by their indulgence in this and their indulgence in that. And what about greed? How many billions of opioid pills pushed by unethical doctors and unethical companies killing hundreds of thousands of people? Oh, yes, that's where we're at. But where should we go? I want to show you this morning that inside the soul of every person listening to me here today or on the Internet is a precious, divinely protected prerogative. It's the ability to choose. Take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. Jesus is on the way to the cross in the Gospel of John. All of the narratives there are narratives of decision-making. Every single person that Jesus meets, with almost without exception, is challenged to make a decision. Jesus isn't particularly delicate about it. He is a vitalizing force because He's full of love. As our lives fill with love, we have that vitalizing force in us as well. But right from the very beginning of the book, we start right down the road of decision-making invitation by Jesus. The first is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, verse 2. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. There's an affirmation and there's a lack of acknowledgement in the divinity of Christ in Nicodemus' words. Jesus answered and he said to him, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not a collegial or professional dialogue to start where affirmations can go back and forth. Jesus loves Nicodemus too much and knows what conviction he's been under. Nicodemus said in verse 4, How can a man be born again when he's old? Cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And Jesus answered, and he said, Truly, truly, this is God speaking. I'm repeating myself. Verily, verily, Don't think I'm equivocating. Don't think I'm hesitating. I'm telling you that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, and nothing has changed. What is he saying to Nicodemus? You rejected John's voice. You rejected John's call to humble yourself and repent. The pride of your heart and the place and position you hold in society has held you back from making the decision the Spirit was saying, move with this, go. We don't know what tide of influence Nicodemus might have had if he would have found himself at the Jordan River and instead of being repulsed by the simplicity and power of the message, he would have wandered down into the water to John the Baptist and said, would you baptize me too? How many other Pharisees, since he was the teacher of teachers in Israel, might have said, that's exactly what I felt impressed to do. But to our knowledge, none of them did it. And they were called snakes by John, and they were called snakes by Jesus. Because they looked like they were the way, but they were actually the journey to perdition. 
They were not exercising a simplicity of soul and a submission to the Spirit. They were moving according to cultural structure, professional placement. They were not willing to humble themselves. And consequently, they gravitated over into the realms of hypocrisy and deadness. And if you think anything has changed in the heart of humanity, stop and think again. It doesn't matter how long you've sat in a pew and how many generations have preceded you. Praise God for those privileges. But nothing can equal the, the priceless privilege of having a personal God who knits you together in your mother's womb, knows your tendencies and proclivities, your strengths and your weaknesses, and knows how to speak a word to you. If there is a need in modern Christianity, including Adventism, it is the rediscovery of the privilege of making decisions that are called for, led into, and supported by the living Christ. This is where we're at. Nicodemus did not immediately choose to follow. But that's for another time. Turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 4. Jesus finds himself with an outcast, rejected by her own. In the middle of the day, by the, in the heat, sitting there between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, just outside the city of Sychar, is the God-man Jesus waiting for the rejected one, whom, whom we know not name. Jesus asked her if he would give her a drink. She wants to know why he's even talking to her. And Jesus said, if you asked me, I would have given you living water. And she said, I don't know how you'd do that. It's a deep well and you have nothing to get it with. You're not greater than our father Jacob, verse 12, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water is going to get thirsty again. It's another encounter of, of someone thinking only in the present, in the literal, in the physical. And Jesus says, I want to satisfy the quenching, the thirsting of your soul. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him, verse 14, will never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty and come out here to draw. And he gave her a chance to make a decision. He said, Go get your husband. Why did he do that? He knew she didn't have a husband. She knew she had five. He knew the current arrangement was a shock up. But he was man number seven, and he was here to give her something she had never had before, which was love and respect and a new beginning. And she decided to move. She took a step. She told part of what was to tell. Jesus said, I know the rest. Her eyes popped open. She wanted to argue about whether they worship in Jerusalem or there on Mount Ebal. Jesus said, listen, that's not the story. The storyline that's coming is it won't matter on which mountain and it won't be either mountain. But those who worship me must worship me in two things. Spirit and what else? True. There are many today who are worshiping in neither, even though they're at a worship service. Because that kind of worship is a life. It is not a punctiliar moment alone. There are many who have decided that God can fit into their life as conveniently as their strategic planning allows. So their money and their time and their education and their influence will be doled out as long as they look out for themselves first, which of course you are to make good plans so that you're not needy and dependent upon the welfare of the church or the government. 
But friends, we have so many people with their careers and their portfolios that are so far on the other side that our schools languish, our mission languages, our children languish, for they see great prospects of large incomes and the good life. The only problem is, even if you get those today, it's not such a good life. Society is unraveling rapidly, not only at the edges, but at the center. Listen to the news. She had a chance to decide, and she took a step. She got a proclamation personally from the lips of Jesus that almost nobody else got, and she went back as a missionary and brought the whole city out, starting with the men. But she had to make up her mind. I am being called to do something. Will I tell the truth or will I lie? Turn over to chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we have a man who's an invalid. He's had the disease for 38 years at least. Jesus asks nothing of him, but gives an opportunity to respond. It is a gospel presentation of new health. It is a perfect mirrored image of how it works with you and me. Your palsied, paralyzed soul is brought to life when you respond to the voice of Jesus. Newness is a gift. Regeneration is a gift. You can't create it. It's yours. Jesus has bequeathed it to you. Your name's written down in the book of life. God forbid that like Judas... Your life should slowly drift away from that simplicity of soul into the arenas of greater sense of intelligence and love of the world that would cost you eternally. Jesus describes in John chapter 5, because he did this thing on Sabbath and he's now held up in a type of court, he describes four witnesses that support him. In verses 33 to 35, it's the witness of John. John was saying he would come, and he came. In verses 36, it's the witness of what he does, his works. In verse 37, it's the witness and 38 of his father. And in verses 39 and onward, it's the witness of the Scriptures. Four witnesses testify that Jesus is who he says he is and whom the Spirit is saying to all of them that he is. But think what's happening. People don't change their mind with facts. People change their mind when they decide they'll be humble enough to be willing to pay the price that change embodies. Change is difficult. Leo Tolstoy once said, the most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he's not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing can't be made clear to the most intelligent man if he's firmly persuaded that he knows already, without a shadow of a doubt, what is laid before him. J.K. Galbraith once said, faced with a choice between changing your mind and proving there's no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy with the proof. So do we as Adventists have anything that needs to change? That's collective. The answer is categorically, absolutely, without a doubt, yes. We ought to be embarrassed that this great gospel news, which was delivered us by sacrifice, of estate and portfolio and children through mission service and sometimes spouses and comforts of home. In this division, the wealthiest in the world, there are very few places where it is thriving. And there are many places where it is slowly dying. But we have to decide... Are we going to sit at home with the remote in our hands and flip through our Roku 
or Hulu? Are we going to say, you know, there's a religious meeting going on, and I'm a member. I think I ought to be there. (laughs) Or will our pastors back up so far that they lower the threshold so low that you can have the world and have Jesus too until you find out that Jesus says, no, I'm a jealous God. (laughs) You can't love that, love them, and love me. It won't work. I had somebody say to me the other day, one of our contractors said to me, You either surrender it now and you let Jesus justify you or you stand before God and you try to justify it to Him. That would be very unfair unless God was speaking to us in the ordinary journey of life, which He does. But you have to make up your mind. Did He call you out of your comfort zone? Or did he go to the cross under great duress of body, mind, and soul so that you could reside in the deleterious spiritual environments that ruin and disease the soul and destroy the church and the institutions that have been built up to change society for the better? Listen, friends, the Christian church is on the retreat. Secular humanism is on the march. And we ought to be convicted that something ought to change. But we'll have to make up our minds first. I can't make up your mind for you. You don't want me to, and I don't want to. But I'm here to tell you, it is not my job to stand in this pulpit behind this plexiglass week after week and assure you how much God loves you while we have no sense of how much God loves the world through us and the love for the world, proper love to reach them, dies while we take the blessings but aren't a blessing. We were given our blessings to bless the world. And God says, don't worry about it. He who lends to the poor, he who gives to the poor, lends to the Lord and he'll repay him. You're not going to run out because you listen to the voice saying, all right, now's the time. Write the check. All right, push the buttons. Send, send. The devil is constantly trying to suggest, and he's partially right, that if you do that, you are not going to be happy. Well, let me tell you something. If you have educated your mental or physical taste for something, for a while when you give it up, you're going to suffer. You're not going to be happy. But once you get past that line, you just ask any smoker that gets free, and you're not buying those cigarettes and yellowing your teeth and clouding your lungs and having to stand eight feet away from every door, you'll be declaring, I love being free from smoking. But we Adventists, we're a funny lot. In this supposed age of new grace, where nobody wants to be a Pharisee, we would never buy a package of cigarettes, but we'll show up at Starbucks over and over again and spend as much or more than that pack costs and think nothing of it. And you think the Spirit doesn't speak to you? We were not called to go backwards with the health message while the world races by us and do it all in the supposed new grace that we're not like those old generations. Listen, I can tell you in every generation, there's Pharisees, in every generation, there's Sadducees. You know, the Sadducees, they were the worldly liberal ones, and the Pharisees were the conservative ones. Worldly in their own way. (laughs) Those flavors do not exist inside God's true church. They may exist in your mind. But wherever you are on the journey, I want you to remember the vision of the narrow way that's in the white estate in Silver Springs, Maryland. I want you to remember the vision, 
The road does not widen out into a superhighway just before we get to heaven. The road gets narrower and narrower, which means God is taking us to high ground. Because down in the plains, you can pave a four-lane highway. But when you're going over a mountain pass, you might have some switchbacks. And as you come up over the top, the road might be skinny and you might be going very slow. But the view is amazing. But to get there, you have to follow the Christ of the narrow way onto the high ground, into the high places. If there is a need in Seventh-day Adventism today, it's a need to hear that voice saying, you need to forgive that person. You need to be not quite so cocky about your position. You need to give more of your time, of your money. Somebody walked into this church a few weeks ago, Holy Spirit moving on their heart, not long after somebody else had walked in as well wrote out a check for $30,000. This is not a rich person. They came only because God moved on their heart. They listened to the voice of the Spirit and they made up their mind. And they, they weren't in the midst of the dialogue. I'm sure the devil was saying, do it later. And they said, no, I'm gonna do it right now before I leave. And they stuck it in my hands and it went in the little box. I had a person tell me recently they decided that the uh, caffeine needed to go in their lives. All right, pastor, two times in one sermon. Oh, you bet. You can get it more than one way. Some of you are turbocharging your life with Red Bull, not knowing that 40 years down the road, just like a turbocharged engine, for all of you that aren't mechanical, you can force a lot more air and gas into an engine. And it'll get you a lot more horsepower but it won't last as long because you're stressing all those crank rods and connecting rods and valves. God never asked us to give up anything that is actually good for us. Now, I have never subscribed to the idea that the old people are the problem. I'm standing on the shoulders of people who sacrificed large homes and nice cars and great vacations so that we could have a roof on a church school. One that's not flat and leaks all the time. But one that's got some pitch on it so the water actually runs off instead of sits there. I'm standing on the shoulders of people who sold the equivalent of their tractors. I'm thinking of Buck and Bright, best pulling oxen in five counties around Battle Creek. The man came under conviction to sell them, which meant he could not plow his ground He'd go down to the steam press that he purchased with his tractor and he'd say, there's Buck and Bright pulling for the Lord. You listen, friends. We have to make up our mind. If we want the vibrancy that once was, we need the commitment that can be and is in the heart of some, but that must spread to the masses. And it will be inconvenient when the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, it's your turn. I don't have the time to take you to all these places, but I'm going to tell you, I I need to go to John 7 at least. I'm going to rapidly move through the rest of the book of John. John 7, 17. Jesus is in constant contention with the established church. He's seeking to win the Pharisees. And by the way, you are never going to find Jesus down on the principles 
that call to a dedicated life like the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, he'll say, you tithe mint, anise, and cumin. He doesn't say don't do it. He says go for the weightier matters and hang on to those conscientious things that are smaller. But in John 7, the key to being able to make up your mind is found. If anyone's willing to do his will, there it is. Listen to a thousand sermons, but if you don't want to, if you don't want to hear, you don't, you won't. For all you equestrians, how does it go? You can lead a horse to what? Water, but you can't make him drink. Well, I've heard that. By God's grace, if anyone's willing to do His will, he'll know. Whether it's God who's talking or whether it's just a person. You come to church, you don't like what the pastor said, good. Maybe. Maybe you're actually wrestling with it. Go home, get down on your knees and say, God, I don't agree with that man. But you know what? I could be wrong and he could be right. So I'm willing for you to show me what to do as I study my Bible and read the spirit of prophecy. And if you want to deepen the conviction and I don't like it, I'll accept it. But you know what? A man convinced is against his will and women aren't far behind is of the same opinion still. If you're not willing to move, don't worry. This sermon's irrelevant to you. You don't need to change. Spirit's not speaking to you. Ladies, put on enough clothes to cover yourself up. Men, don't wear them so tight. Maybe we shouldn't be skipping Sabbath school and prayer meeting. And maybe my life shouldn't be so hot in the pursuit of my own security or significance that I don't have time. I'm barely squeezing God in. Too much? John chapter 8 is the most fierce conversation you're going to read in the whole Bible. We're not going to go there, but go home and read it. When it's all said and done, they're calling him basically an illegitimate child, which in that society, you think of the words that used to go with that, that's what they were saying. And Jesus says, you're sons of the devil and you're liars. But Jesus ends the conflict with this word, which is close to taking his life. He said, just remember this one thing before Abraham was... I am. And they would have killed him if they could have. In John chapter 9, which was our scripture reading, why does a man have to get his sight and lose his social position in society all in the same day? He was considered stricken of God because he was born blind. That's why they were asking the question. So why does he get his sight and have to be denied by his parents and rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees? So we get family and church family all in the same blow. Why? Because Jesus knew that man would make the decision to come into the family of God and consider the riches of being loved by Jesus better than the riches of being loved by his own mom and dad. We get into John chapter 10, verse 27, and Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, nothing's changed. And we come all the way to John chapter 11, and Jesus takes it up to the penultimate decision-making moment. Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, I know. 
but it's not about death, then why did he die? He shows up at the tomb. He tells Martha he'll live again. She says, yeah, I get it, Jesus, somewhere down the road. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Roll away the stone. No, he's going to smell. Jesus stares into the darkness and speaks with the voice of authority. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he shuffles out of the grave and they take the stripes and the strips of clothing off of him. And everybody knows this was undeniably a proof of divinity, which is why at the end of the chapter, the scribes and the Pharisees say, he's going to have to die. But it's a decision-making moment. How can you get around it? Now, there are just a few more. John chapter 12 is Jesus' last Sabbath meal. He's sitting there in Simon the leper's house, just like you're about to do in a few minutes. And this woman of ill repute comes in and begins washing his feet. She hasn't thought about how it's going to change the social dynamic. And John tells us it was Judas, and he starts saying, what a waste. Talk about breaking Jesus' heart. What a waste. And Jesus, who has never confronted Judas in three-plus years of ministry, looks at him and says in kindness but in firmness, leave her alone, she's done a good thing. Judas pushes himself away from the table, walks out of the house, and goes strikes a deal to betray Jesus. He had a decision to make. There are two more I want to highlight. They go into the upper room five days later, And by divine providence and through a disciple who has learned to listen, there's a room made ready for Jesus to celebrate the Passover. Don't miss these little details. He's not one of Jesus' regular followers. All the disciples have to do is find the right sign, which is a donkey, and follow them into the city. And that will be the place. Provisions made. God has moved on somebody's heart. It's ready for Jesus. And they get into the room and everything is ready except one thing. There's nobody to wash everybody's feet. And they all get to make a decision. Now, you know, Jesus says at the meal, somebody's going to betray me. And they all say, Lord, is it I? But without anything being said, the Holy Spirit is speaking to every one of those 12 men saying, You wash their feet. And you know what they all say? No. And so a decision has to be made. But it's not hard for Jesus, because it's who he is. He gets down and starts washing their feet. Now there's one more decision. Really, there's others. But I'm going to take one more before I'm done. They go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus sweats drops of blood. Finally, he gets his disciples up and brings them down. Judas is coming with the mob. One angel passes between Jesus and the mob. They all fall down like they're dead. They get up. Judas comes to Jesus. And he puts his arms out like this. And he goes to embrace the master. 
And before his lips can fall on the blood-stained cheek of Jesus, Jesus says, last decision-making moment. You're not betraying me with a kiss, are you, Judas? There's a thousand ways to betray somebody, but why with a kiss? The heart of Jesus is broken and bleeding for this urged upon apostle or disciple by the other eleven. And Jesus gives him one last chance to decide to go a different way because Jesus knows what he's doing. But he doesn't change and he doesn't stop. And he sees him struck by Caiaphas' servant. And he hears the taunts. And he rushes back in and he throws the silver on the stone floor and cries out, I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? How patient could Jesus be? He was not so patient that he would not stand in the way of Judas. He was not so patient that he would not stand in the way of Peter. You're going to betray me. No, I'm not. You will. But remember, I prayed for you. I won't. He did. When the eyes of Jesus caught Peter's eyes in the courtyard, no anger, no impatience, just sadness. He knew Peter. He knows me, and he knows you. Reread the book of John. Read it with the eyeglasses. Facts don't change people's minds, and neither will this message unless the Holy Spirit makes it live. But we're not going to add, we're not going to heaven. We're not going to Adventist heaven either, like we're going right now. The church is going to shake, convulse. I remember when I was about 40 years old, stuck in the throes of the perils of pastoring, which is the emotional trauma of making people upset by following. Education, page 57. And I came to grips with who God wanted me to be, and it was okay what everybody else thought. I've never clung to this pulpit or this position for its prominence or its significance or its place in any community. I would be a false shepherd if I implemented instrumentalities and modalities that were different than Jesus. But I cling to two. Love you. And as nice as possible, tell you the truth. And from there you get to decide. So is it legalism? Is Adventism nothing but a, a barrel full of legalistic monkeys in the past? Or is it the path to liberty and life 
when Jesus is at the center. And is there a cross to bear in my ordinary living? Do I, am I a walking advertisement by my uniqueness to the world? Hopefully my uniqueness of fidelity and love and kindness and respect. But am I, am I willing to be whatever Jesus calls me to be? If He called me to turn it all over like the rich young ruler, would I do it? If He caused me to pause on the superhighway of life and attend to whether He was a Samaritan or a Jew, would I do it? Or is my life so focused on me that I'm on the same road the scribes and Pharisees and the rest of the Jewish nation and the rest of the world is on? And my profession of God is like that of the Old Testament where the prophet said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, read their lives, are far from me. Jesus had the chance to decide. It was there in Gethsemane. And while the devil was telling him, nobody cares and it's not going to make a difference. And you know they're all going to leave you. Jesus said no. I'm sticking with my choice. I'm following my Father all the way to the cross. And for the joy that is set before me, which I know will come, even though I will suffer, I'm keeping my eye on these weak and erring ones who don't love me like I love them, but someday they will. Friends, learn to listen. Pause to hear. Be willing to obey. And you'll look up and say, this is our God. We've waited for Him. This is my God. I've waited for Him. stand and sing our closing hymn.